With great power comes great responsibility. And in today's ever-connected world, some of the greatest power lies in data. In the Data Plus event series, alumni join a group of Waterloo experts to explore the power and responsibility that comes with data. This episode is a recording from the latest event in the series called Data Plus the Arts. It's hosted by Craig Kaplan, Associate Professor in the Cheriton School of Computer Science. And the event features a panel of artists who use data in their practices. They discuss different ways that artists can use data, how the meaning behind data might inform their art, and more. Keep listening. So thank you all for coming and, and good evening. Um, this is going to be primarily a, a, an informal conversation about our beliefs about the way that uh, data and the arts interact and intersect. So uh, let me just offer some introductory remarks first. My name is Craig Kaplan. I am an alumni of the University of Waterloo. I received my, uh, my bachelor's of mathematics here in 1996. So I'm particularly pleased to be here uh, at an event that is hosted by the Alumni Association and uh, to talk about this topic, which is close to my heart as someone who's interested in the intersections between mathematics and the arts. In fact, I, it's great that you brought up some of those topics because um, as it happens right now, I'm reading a book about the birth of projective geometry in the Italian Renaissance. So um, like Masaccio and Brunelleschi and how that, how that developed into what we now use day to day in mathematics. Um, but let's focus on data. So as Mark said, we are constantly awash in a sea of data, more data than we can possibly comprehend. As he said, we, every day the human race generates 18 bazillion bytes of data, who knows how much actually. Uh, and it's very hard to get our heads around all of that. Certainly, uh, here where we do data science, we invent mathematical and computational tools that help. So uh, data science is partly about being able to make sense of those raw numbers in a meaningful way by constructing visualizations, graphs, uh, uh, you know, charts, and also just tables, and trying to build statistical summaries of large volumes of data. But another tool that we can use to make sense of data, of course, is art. Um, art helps us make sense of the world in a different way, but a very important way. It, it can inspire us and provoke us and move us to think a certain way and to act a certain way in a way that uh, raw data not, can't necessarily do. It can really engage with us at a deep emotional and intuitive level. And that's one of the reasons I, I love the topic of art and mathematics together. Uh, so, you know, art can intersect with data in a few different ways. Uh, sometimes data is just a raw source of randomness that an artist might use to drive their process in order to gain some unpredictability. And, uh, an example that I like of that is Mozart, who invented a game where he would roll dice to pick little fragments of melody that he would then use as a basis for composing. And, you know, sometimes the data itself matters in the creation of the art we end up with. Uh, and you may have seen online examples of this, one that I like recent. I, I'm, I'm afraid I can't tell you exactly where I saw this, but easy to find people who knit scarves, for example, where every row of the scarf represents a day's worth of climate data wherever they happen to live. So maybe you change the color depending on the temperature that day. Uh, so that's, that's really today's theme. Let me just constrain it a little bit but with some ground rules, not ground rules, we talk about whatever we want, but just some, uh, some thoughts on what we might not visit today that you might be expecting. First of all, 
we've decided well, we don't want to use this opportunity to try to define art. That's, that's maybe, yeah, that's a lifetime's worth of work by a lot of people. We will instead adopt a broad and inclusive view of what art is and not try to question uh, and litigate each piece that we see uh, as to whether it constitutes art. The other thing we want to point out is um, there's a lot of new art that you will have seen even in the past few months that is generated by AI, right, by artificial intelligence. Uh, names like Stable Diffusion and DALI 2 and Imogen and, um, and a few other tools that are being pioneered by, uh, by AI companies generating art using deep learning techniques. It's a fascinating topic and we all love it, but it's also its own topic that deserves its own treatment outside of uh, what we're going to talk about today. So we might touch on that in passing, but that's about as far as we'll go. First of all, I'd like to introduce Rob Gorbett, who's right here on my left. Uh, Rob is an artist and engineer. He's a professor and chair of the Knowledge Integration Program in the Faculty of Environment here at the university. And he, uh, to the extent that this is an alumni event, he wins as the alumniist, having received all of his degrees here at the university. Next, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Jane Tingley. Jane is an artist and curator. She's also a professor in the Department of Computational Arts at York University, which is a department name of which I'm very jealous because it sounds, it just sounds great. Uh, but formerly, I will say, a professor here at the University of Waterloo, both at the Waterloo and the Stratford campuses until just a couple of years ago. Uh, so definitely a connection to the University of Waterloo and we're, we're very pleased to have her back visiting us. Uh, so, okay, finally, uh, it's my pleasure then to introduce uh, Marcelo Gorman, who's sitting at the end there. Marcel is also an artist and a professor here at the University of Waterloo in the English department. And he's also, very importantly, the director of the Critical Media Lab, which is uh, an interdisciplinary new media space uh, here at the university that is focused on the interaction between technology and human experience. So let's, uh, let's move into a little bit more open-ended conversation now. Of course, I'm the moderator, so I'm not just going to turn it over uh, completely, but rather I'll try to pose some leading questions and see how our panelists respond to them. Uh, the first, I think, that I'll start off with, maybe it's, it's the most straightforward question that you would want to ask a, a, a collection of artists working with data, which is, how should data be incorporated into art? And you know, maybe one way to think about that is, what do you love to see in art that makes explicit use of data? What do you get excited about in your work or the work of others? And I'm, I'm, I, I'm willing to be completely democratic. Does anybody want to jump in with a hot take? Um, yeah, I, Thank you. Um, sure. Um, I think I'm going to equivocate. I, I don't. I, um, uh, so, one of the things that I really love is a really fantastic visualization. I think that uh, oftentimes data has a lot of layers to it, and um, while algorithms can help us sort of pull out, you know, high slope areas and like figure out where the peaks are and so on, and say, look at sample number 972 because that's where the interesting stuff is. Um, there's nothing like a really good visualization of data. Mm -hmm. um, that I, that, that, so I get very excited about those. Um, but I also think that it can be really elegant 
to uh, build what are, what are sometimes called ambient displays. And so, you know, we're using a very broad um, definition of art, but I think, for example, about projects Herman Miller uh, for their red collection in their, in their headquarters in New York City um, built a, an application that was taking all of the data around sales in different stores around the country and sales of specific products. And they just had sort of ambient lights and shapes projected on the wall in a way that um, rendered these sort of mass of data sort of intuitive to the managers who knew how to read it. Um, so there's something very elegant about being able to present data in a consumable way. Um, and th but then I also like data that, I also like art that, where the data is just the, the inspiration and not necessarily visualized. So that's where I'm communicating a little bit. But That's fair. Yeah. I mean, it, I assume we would agree there's a continuum from like the Absolutely. simplest line graph showing, you know, here's the stock price and the most profound work of art that interprets that through many layers. Absolutely. And I think, I think one of the things about the interpretive um, power of art um, is that sometimes the message that the artist wants to send is not so much about, it doesn't come from the data itself. I mean, Marcel, you alluded a little bit to this, right? That the data, data can be nice, it can be good, it can be bad, it can be, but often the role of the artist is to sort of highlight that data, highlight the issue around the data and get, art has a unique ability to get people to consider emotionally and, and um, yeah. I think you like the framing, yeah. right? Like if it's kind of like with photography, I mean, you can you, you frame the world that you see, and I think that this can be really powerful when an artist frames data in a very particular way and sort of helps tell a story through the use of metaphor. I'm a sucker for a good metaphor, so if I see something really, like a really smart way of handling it, like something that's not too didactic, that sort of puts it in dialogue with larger issues, I think it's really exciting when, some, when an artist could, I think that's the craft, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. At, a, at a low level, I mean, the thing that comes to mind is, is just raw composition, right? Good photography, good painting. The artist has a knack for saying, you, your eye started here, but I want you to come over here. There's, there's something I want you to see here on my, on my canvas. And uh, good art can do that for data as well. It can yeah. say, here's where the interesting stuff happens, and I want you to stop and consider it. I, I would agree with that, um, especially the connection to larger social issues that you're, you're saying. So I think the data art that I like really looks at data that we wouldn't normally have access to, or we wouldn't think of, and it brings it to the fore, and it says, look at this, look what's happening. Or it looks at data that, that we can't get access to, like Mimi Onyuoha, Brooklyn-based artist. Um, I had her uh, appear in a class I taught here a few years ago, but she has this basically this uh, library of missing data. And it's just a file cabinet with file folders in it. But f the folders are, are things like number of children born to um, mixed race couples, or uh, the number of black people who auditioned for roles on Broadway and didn't get the role. Um, things like that. And it's, mm -hmm. it's very abstract. It's not about mathematical data points. It's about you know, the stuff that we don't know, the data that we don't have that hasn't been collected. That, that's very interesting to me. Mm. Well, let me, let me shift to something that I feel strongly about that uh, I think is related, which is um, how important is the exact nature of the data for informing what it is you end up doing with it artistically? I mean, uh, in computer graphics, which is one of the things I study, there's 
uh, a lot of fun, interesting generative art where you, you create some kind of abstract visualization, but usually the visualization is driven purely by randomness. So sure, that is a source of data, but it is almost by definition a not interesting source of data. It's just pure data for its own sake. How much, uh, how much does it matter that the data is about something? Or are you willing to work with any data set as long as the numbers wiggle in a pretty way? It's interesting that, because uh, I talked to my husband about this last night when we were walking the dog, just probing this question and thinking about it. And for me, I think I really, understanding the data is really important for me and it helps inform the metaphors that I work with. So for example, uh, with my visualization with all the particulates, um, it's, uh, that's the way the, the size of the particulates have a lot to do with CO2. And so looking at all my data sets, I can see that, you know, during the night, the CO2 levels get higher and higher, and then during the day, it gets lower and lower. I think that's mm -hmm. how it goes. And it's so basically, it's kind of every day, the forest is taking a single breath. And then I think about my own breath, and I think every time I exhale, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's humid, it's thicker. The air coming out of my mouth is thicker than the air that comes in, which informed why I decided that all the particulates would get juicy, is what I called them. And so they get juicier at night, and then they get really nice and thin during the day. So it's the interpretation and the understanding of that data that helps generate my artistic choices in yeah. how I represent the data in this particular visualization, because I'm trying to create this, this living entity that was made up from all these things that I extracted and then put back together again, right? So for me, I think understanding the data is important, but I don't think it's necessary for every artist, right? I just think for me, right. it's important. On that. Well, I mean, it's interesting because in, the, in, a, in a, the case of Teat Tweet, for example, it didn't matter whether the cow was pumping out 3.8 kilograms or 2.6. The point is that the messaging around that is you probably didn't know that a, a, a robot and attached computer apparatus was measuring how much milk a cow was outputting. It doesn't matter how much. But in something like data about uh, missing and murdered indigenous women being integrated into a project, probably matters. Um, <laughs> so it, it really depends on the context. Like, you know, you can, you can plug data into uh, some kind of visualization apparatus and it doesn't matter what the data is, it'll make interesting visuals. Right. But if you're being political about it, it matters where the data comes from. That's fair. But also think with cheat tweet though, I mean, it's the fact that this data is being collected. It's yeah. like the reality, yeah. it's the employee, yeah. like, it, that, like just watching the video is very intense. The fact that an animal, this sort of other than human animal is living in a, in a context that's very inhumane it feels. Like it just sort of, and then it's getting quantified, but we can see the metaphors and how that sort of proliferates. Proliferates outwards. Well, Lely Robotics says the cows like it better because there's less interaction with humans. The cows milk themselves. They're like they wander around this barn, and the farmer said, "I don't touch my cows anymore. I, I don't know my cows." He loved the Twitter so thing sad. because it's like suddenly this data has brought him closer to his cows. It, it wow. is. It is a kind of another layer of interpretation of the idea of data and the arts. Like the T tweet is more commentary on data than an artwork that explicitly does something with the data. And in fact, even an even stronger commentary, I think, is, the, the, is Mimi's work that you mentioned earlier, right? The library of, of missing data. 
that is very much about data and the arts, but it is specifically about not having the data. So there's, there's no data to visualize. I just wonder what would tweet, if my phone were to tweet out how much data, things that I'm doing, if it were to tweet that information out. It just makes me think about myself, maybe. <laughs> well, uh, the, the artist um, Ed Felton, I think is his name, an artist and designer who used to produce an annual report of himself, and he would keep careful track of all the data he generated throughout a year, every phone call, every interaction, every bowl of cereal, and then he would produce this richly illustrated report at the end of the year. That's what that would be like quantified life. Flaying yourself yeah. for the public. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, um, you know, I, I'm happy to use any kind of data, but I think I'd like to be thoughtful about what I do with it. So I think I agree with Marcel that there's certain kinds of data that you want to be respectful of. Absolutely. Um, you know, in, in the pieces that I showed earlier, there's, there's all different kinds of uses of data and even some, you know, the inspiration for the form of solar collector. We didn't even anticipate that that was going to happen and it was just kind of natural. Um, on the one hand, we are looking at um, a project in the Bay of Fundy that's going to use real-time tide data to influence the, the movement of the lights on the sculpture. Um, and then you mentioned randomness, and, and I, I think that's, there's something really lovely about that because one of the things that we found in the sculpture is where we're trying to impart the idea of intelligence of, of, uh, that, the, that the sculptures are living. Um, Randomness is critically important because otherwise things look deterministic. Um, yeah. And so you overlay a little bit of randomness on something and all of a sudden it has this more human. Um, Colin Allard in psychology had a grad student who was uh, trying to study how people assign agency to objects. Yeah. Um, and there's a, there's a simulation where a ball will fly at you in a VR environment and if the ball followed a physical trajectory it was a ball but if you imposed any kind of movement randomness on that trajectory all of a sudden it was alive people would assign agency to it um, so that's that's, that's really terrific yeah. other comments all right all right um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I think we already talked about that a little bit um, <laughs> let me let me turn things around just a little bit now and uh, Maybe something a little bit closer to uh, Marcel's heart, not to call on you directly. You can feel free to demerge. But I think in our preliminary discussions in preparation for this, you brought up the term data abstinence, um, which I think is a great term, right? Sort of yeah. deliberately withdrawing from the deluge of data. So the question for everybody then is what is the role of data abstinence in contemporary art? And can art help us escape the deluge rather than wallow in it? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I'm not specifically directed at you, but if you want to take the first Yeah, I mean, I've used, I, I taught a course called Digital Abstinence, a grad course, probably five or six times. I was going to write a book called Digital Abstinence. <laughs> I mean, I was raised a Catholic, I'm sorry. You teach it uh, online? Uh, I, I have taught it online, actually. Um, and the students started the class by smashing a computer with a sledgehammer yes. and then exploring the implications of that. Ridiculous. Um, I, I shy away from the word abstinence for a number of reasons now. I was using it ironically. I actually like to co-opt uh, ritualistic elements of the Catholic Church. I've done performances about this. You can look it up if you want. It's weird. Um, <laughs> but I think the, the idea of data abstinence to me is, is interesting to think about because it's impossible. <laughs> it is imp from, you know, bef even before you're born, data is being gathered about you. And I wrote about this in uh, a book called Necromedia. Uh, and it's 
but just the experience of my child in a womb already being, you know, there's data already being gathered about the child. The gender is inscribed on a screen. And as soon as you see that M-A-L-E on the screen, you're immediately starting to project the future of that child and to project your assumptions onto that child. So that data, I mean, that happens before you're born. They, you can't escape. You can't be data abstinent. Um, you know, you go to Tim Hortons, you think, you're, you think, you know, you're, no one's collecting data on you. Well, you're using an app, so maybe that's not fair. But anyway, I, I, I like to think of it as, I mean, is it even possible? What would it look like to live without allowing anyone to collect data about you? Um, I'm talking about digital data here. Sure. We could, you know, yeah. And everyone else is like, we don't want to talk about that. I don't, I don't want to. <laughs> no, I mean... But what about like, <clears throat> you know, should we be creating artworks that allow us to withdraw from the data somehow? What would that, would, is there anything that that is specifically, or is that just a painting, right? Or an empty canvas? Well, I was, I was going to say, you know, leave your phone at home and go to an art gallery. Um, yeah. But there'll be security cameras there taking yeah. your pictures. So hard to Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was thinking, I mean, there was a, an artist recently who was commissioned by a, a museum, I think it was in, I want to say Denmark, to produce artworks, and he just gave them empty canvases. And I think they were entitled to take the money and run, which was, which was great. And that, you know, I would, go, I would go and contemplate those empty canvases as a, as a break from the everyday deluge. Okay. Uh, well, then, uh, if, we're, uh, if we're moving on, then let's... Uh, let's turn to the future, uh, the unknowable future, but uh, it's always interesting to contemplate where we go with this topic, with uh, the interaction between data and art. So um, what, what do you foresee, and maybe more importantly, what would you like to see? What do you hope to see about, uh, in the interaction between data and art in the future? Is it going to be new kinds of data, new kinds of art with existing data, new kinds of interactions between them, or something else? I don't know how to answer that question without going to Dali. Dali too. You can, no, you can. Go I, there, I, go there. We didn't want to completely Just deconstruct the, the, the right. modern AI art movement. Um, you, can, you can tell us how you feel. So there's, that. so, um, uh, Craig referred earlier to a, a series of AI algorithms that are increasingly becoming intelligent, well, becoming able to uh, produce creative works in, in, in response to a text prompt. Yeah. Um, and this has spawned a whole, and the, the part of the reason I want to talk about these is that um, on the one hand, you know, like a lot of other things, we can look at that and say, is this the death of the artist? You know, where is this, is this the death of creativity? Um, on the other hand, I think, Jane, you shared recently Ken Ronaldo's um, post, who's a, an American artist, um, and he's collaborating with Dali, right? He's like feeding Dali prompts, Dali feeds him back images, he takes those images and improves them, he digitizes yeah. them, works on them in Illustrator, feeds more prompts into Dali, and so there's, there's a really interesting uh, collaborative aspect to that. Um, this this prompt-based creative act is not just happening in art. Um, so there's a, there's a specialized program called Midjourney, right. which is similar, and its, its purpose is to create architecture. 
Um, and we're looking at the same thing happening in software, where you'll be able to take a, a text prompt and have it generate code for you. Um, so we're designing buildings by speaking to a computer, and we're designing art by speaking to a computer, and we're designing software by speaking to a computer. And it's given rise to a whole field called prompt engineering, because you have to actually be pretty good at creating these prompts to get what you want out of it. So the technology's not there yet, but it's super fascinating to see. And I, I foresee, like, think going down that road, I foresee it as a tool that experts will learn to, uh, to take advantage of and to use, like Ken is doing in the art world, and like some architects are doing with Midjourney now. Um, so I don't know, I don't know where, I mean, that's, that's one direction that I think sure. that data goes in the future, data and art. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's worth, it's worth saying, uh, these algorithms, uh, the data here is the just simply gargantuan amount of data that is fed into these algorithms in order to train them, right? The, something like Midjourney is trained on hundreds of thousands or millions of images, and in fact, the next generation of tools that people have released are search engines to allow you to check if your images are in that data set informing the outputs that these algorithms are creating. For our part in CS, I know some of my colleagues are a little bit scared about the automated coding systems from prompts. Like, is this, you know, never mind the, is this the end of the artist? Is this the end of the CS undergrad student yeah. who will just, you know, type in, give me the answer to this question? Or is it the end of the patient who's you know, right. cancer treatment has driven by prompt-generated software. <laughs> right. yeah, Jimmy yeah. had a few things to say about that, too. Yeah. But, I mean, a lot of it is, it's like these data sets that are being curated, that are training these, 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 these AIs. I think this is, I mean, when, when artists are participating, I think what's really important to me, at least, is that the artist is taking the, the algorithm, they're taking the, the, the technologies, and they're modifying them, they're putting in different relationships to each other, they're creating, they're, they're unpacking complexity in interesting ways, they're creating their own metaphors to critically rethink how these tools are being used. I think in a lot of ways, what I want to see artists doing is I want to see them get more and more literate in technology. Yeah. I want to see them being able to write their own algorithms, to be able to really critically engage and sort of offer the other side of the pendulum because it's, these, are, these technologies are not neutral, we all know that, and also we need people to propose new possible ways of thinking about technology and I think that's kind of what the artist's job is, is to sort yeah. of poke at a problem and to say, well, I propose something different. And I want to see artists doing that and that's why I think it's important to have like the program that I'm teaching yeah. in computational arts, it's half computer science and engineering and fine arts and we want our students to be literate, 100% literate in both of the, well, can you never be 100% literate when it's interdisciplinary because it's really hard to become excellent at a, at a lot of things, but at the same time, I think it's really essential to have somebody other than, you know, industry coming up with these technologies and, and deploying them in the world and to sort of put them into different contexts and to shift and shift how we think about them and to point fingers at what's actually happening um, in important yeah. ways. Yeah, I think that's all great. Um, I like to think about, you know, the current context of AI-generated um, art in the context of Photoshop in to, to architects um, yeah. 20 years ago. I remember at the University of Detroit teaching architecture class, classes to architects, and there were some old-school architects there who were like, these students shouldn't be using Photoshop. 
and they shouldn't be using these new 3D CAD things that they're working with. They should be drawing these things and learning how to use a ruler and a, and a pencil. And it's, it's really all about co-creation. It's about co-creation with the tools. An AI generating, an art generating AI engine is a tool. And sure, it'll generate art all day, and some people will call it art. And I can get to that in a minute, but um, it's really about the co-creation between uh, a human being, currently a yeah. human being, and that thing. That context can change. I mean, the yeah. Impressionists were kept out of the salon, yeah. right? Because that was not art. Um, so it's all about the changing context Jane, Jane mentioned. Like, you, if the context for what is art changes and we accept non-human, we haven't really accepted animal, non-human animal art, are we going to accept non-human machine art? Maybe. But like, I don't know, I just, I feel like people are making machines, like we're feeding them data. I mean, like, I, I, the, I showed you guys the, the, um, the artworks from the Electra Festival from 2016, machines making machines, making art for machines. And, and so you'd have all these, uh, one of them was, there was all these machines that were trained on expressionistic type pencil drawings. Right. And so you'd sit down and all these robotic arms would start looking at you and drawing you and you'd walk away with all these beautiful images. Why isn't that? Like, it's gorgeous. And it's interesting because it's really about this machine that's doing an interpretation based on how it was trained. And so these images are filtered through so much information. And then you've got 20 of them as these 20 different machines interpret you differently. And, and that, that in itself is a fascinating artwork. Or the, there was one robotic arm that wrote out the Bible over the whole show in beautiful calligraphy. But, like, these are interesting pieces in my but, mind. But isn't the art in the design of those things. The art is in the coding and architecture of those machines. It's not that the machines are making art, it's someone made those That's machines. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's like an artist is still working with this. Like this yes. is not like okay. the artist yeah. isn't implicated. The art, like right. this machine wouldn't do it on its own. We agree. You know? Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is the... So I don't, I don't understand the argument, I guess, is what I'm saying, sorry. No, I was just going to say there was just reference to you know mid twentieth century artist Saul Lewitt, who was about like right. okay, I'm gonna you know it's a, it's about the act of creation is not in the act of execution. They're they're separate, um, and so he would write out instructions, and so you can see a Saul Lewitt wall painting number seventy two in multiple places, and they'll all be different. Um, and the the original creation is the set of instructions that are given to various sets of executors. Um, and so this is this is kind of similar to that, you know, like it's like who's writing the code. Yeah, Kent Monkman, um, indigenous artist uh, who has a show coming up at, um, at the ROM, actually, um, of all places, which is really interesting. Is he has a team of artists. This is, this is basically Renaissance style, but he, he has a, a, a vision, he sets up models, takes photos, and he kind of sketches things out. And a team of artists make these incredible, incredible paintings, tableau. Um, I mean, it, it's kind of similar in that he's giving a set of instructions and they're executing it, and then you get this thing, and it's like, wow, that thing's beautiful. Did Kent Monkman make the right. thing? Because he gets, still gets to play the role of the artist. Yeah. But that's yeah. the problem of the art world, right? Because yeah. the art world likes to create their little genius and say, this is the artist, right? And then meanwhile, there's, it's like, the, like a director of a film. Like, you don't have a film without a cinematographer. So it's really a complex system of people all working together on a vision. Sure. And so I have a real hard time with this sort of, I, like a lot of these works are very collaborative and there's many, many very talented human beings involved in that collaboration. 
So I think that's yeah. an art world problem. Yep, that's fair. You know, no, no mid-journey produced painting just emerged out of the void all at once. It rests on an enormous amount of technology, mathematics, images by human artists over you know, however many years. And so to your original uh, point about mid-journey and, and about the algorithms that are allowing you, the search engines that allow you to find your images, you know, with the, with the living architecture work that we do, those are massive projects with hundreds of thousands of individual hand-assembled pieces in them. And there's an army of volunteers and studio interns and everybody, and they're all credited. Um, but, you know, how far do you go? Do you, do you go back and just, you know, does an image generated by Midjourney need to credit all of the original photographers of the original images? Yeah, yeah, yeah like, you know. Maybe fractional yeah. credits, depending on. Maybe, yes, yeah, font size or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out the extended video recording. Follow the link in the episode description to watch the full event and see some artwork created by the panelists. Want to join a future event like this one? Get notified about events in your area by updating your email info. Just follow the link in the episode description. You Waterloo Alumni Podcasts are produced by me, Meg Vanderwood. Aju Chow is our editor. Aju and I are both alumni and staff at the University of Waterloo.